This is Ahuka, and welcome to another episode of Hacker Public Radio. And I want to do something that, again, is maybe just a little bit different from what I've done in the past. Uh, I think we're going to be able to build on this in some interesting ways that you might not anticipate. But to start with, I want to talk about something that has been around for a while. And that is the separation of presentation from content on the World Wide Web. Uh, I, I got into this a few years back, uh, actually during the 1990s. I managed a website for uh, an educational institution. It was a rather small college, university, whatever you want to call it here in the United States. Uh, and I, I ended up with uh, managing the website because I knew more about web technology than anyone else there, which is as good a reason as any, I suppose. So I, you know, I stepped forward when they were looking for volunteers and said, yeah, let me take a look at this. Now, you know, managing a website for an educational institution, <clears throat> you do have a number of different concerns. Uh, many of them are the ones that you would have uh, in general for any website. You you want to have good design, right? And and we we did get a, a good design. I was able to work with a uh, very talented uh, web designer. Well, he's a graphic designer, really, but you know he developed a pretty good sense of how the web ought to work, and uh, gave me some good stuff to work with. And then the other part, of course, is gathering and presenting all the information that uh, is needed by all of your audiences. <clears throat> and we have a number of audiences in a situation like that. Uh, you have students, faculty, parents, potential students. You know, there's a, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different people that are going to be using that website, and they they have different needs. So figuring out how we're going to reconcile all of that was interesting. The one thing that uh, some people may not always think about, uh, though, is accessibility. Uh, in the United States, there's a law called the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that says any organization that receives federal funds must make its facilities accessible. All right, that's my layman's interpretation of that. Uh, if, if you want to know more, I'm sure there are attorneys that could give you a much more nuanced and detailed, but that's the basis of it. All right? If you get federal funds, you, you have to make your facilities accessible. Now, this has been applied for, uh, for years in a number of contexts. So you, know, you might have restaurants that are being sued because uh, they're, they're not handicap accessible. You know, you can't enter with a wheelchair or something like that because it's up on the second floor. There's no elevator and things like that. 
So that's one way it's been applied. But on a website, there are applications of this. Uh, and I was aware of that. Now, I would want to make my website accessible anyway. Uh, you didn't need to pass a law to make me think that this was something that was worth doing. Uh, I, I have a number of friends who uh, have various issues, uh, including a couple who are good friends of mine who are uh, blind since birth. And, uh, you know, I, so I'm aware of the issues. It does, however, help to have a law when you're dealing with executive leadership. And executive leadership does not necessarily put a priority on stuff like this. Uh, from their perspective, it's like, well, that's nice to have as long as we don't have to spend any money or go to any particular effort. Uh, well, I, I wasn't really spending a lot of money other than the time. And, you know, you can argue that time is money. Uh, but there were certain things that people wanted to do on the website that I said, you can't do that because it breaks accessibility. And because I could point to the law, I, I had a certain amount of negotiating strength in those kinds of arguments. So I started digging into, you know, what does accessibility mean? And, and it's a large and complicated thing, and I'm not going to get into all of that now. But the thing that, uh, that I want to talk about that came out of that, uh, and it's one of the more profound things that I learned in the course of this, and I discovered it has much broader applicability, and this will probably turn into a, a several podcasts where I start exploring the implications of all of this. And so the idea of separation of presentation from content, what does that mean? Well, that means that the information you present should be independent of the way you present it. Okay? So, uh, in, take a simple case, you write a poem. All right. Does it matter whether the poem is typed or handwritten? Should that make any difference to the meaning of the poem? And when I put it that way, I think a lot of people would say, well, yeah, sure. What difference does that make? But it turns out there can be an issue here. And anyone who's trained in graphic design would probably see it right away. And that is that we use visual cues all the time to signal something about what we mean in a piece of text. For instance, I'm, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, the book is uh, called Wikinomics by T Don Tapscott. It's a very interesting book. It's all about how uh, peer production and the web are, are changing all sorts of things in the economy. Um, but as I'm reading it, <clears throat> there are certain things that, that I start noticing. Uh, for instance, like a lot of books, this particular book has chapters. Okay. Well, what what is a chapter and how do I know I'm looking at one? Uh, well, there are certain clues that give it away. One clue, for instance, is when a chapter is ending. What's the clue that a chapter is ending? The clue is a page of text that does not fill the page. Now, 
you might once in a great while, strictly by accident, happen to have a chapter where the last page does fill the entire page. But most of the time, that's a that that's a hint right away, a visual cue that says that's the end of the chapter. Now we can confirm that by taking a look at the following page and seeing if a new chapter begins. And well, how do we know there's a new chapter there? Well, again, there's going to be cues. Um, typically, the chapter would have a title. And that title is a line of text that is separated from the rest of the text. It's at the top of the page. It's usually in a larger font usually bold. Right? There, there may be other cues that are going to tell me that, but all of those are cues that say, starting a new chapter here. All right? Separate line at the top, larger font, bold, all of these things are part of a visual language that says a new chapter is beginning. Now, in this particular book, this is a uh, non-fiction book uh, and within the chapters there are subsections actually several levels of them and if you take a look at the subsections how do you know you have a subsection well again there are visual cues about all of that uh, there are uh, subsection headings it's a line of text separated from what comes before and after, generally in a somewhat larger font, not as big as the font for the chapter title, but larger than the font used for the body of text. And again, that tends to be bold. And within this particular book, I can see that even the subsections have subsections. And again, those subsections have a line of text separated from everything else. Just a teensy bit larger, but again, bold. So it's like there's this hierarchy of size that is going from the chapter title to the main sections to the main subsections and so on. All right, so all of this is an example of a visual language that is communicating information that is not contained in the raw text. So if you were using just a plain text editor that didn't have all of that stuff available, you would not have this information. Now another example, italics. Uh, we use italics in text to communicate something that is important, that we want to call out in some way, we want to emphasize. Right? Uh, you know, in my teaching days, I used to point this out and say italics were an author's way of saying, pay attention, this is important. Okay. Italics are very often used that way. This is another part of our visual language and it's communicating information that is not actually part of the raw text. We're using the visual appearance of the text to communicate some additional information. And that's what we call presentation. Okay. Now in the world of print, I think this works pretty well. 
Now, there are a lot of talented graphic designers out there, and, and please do not listen to anything I'm talking about as an attack on graphic design. Furthest thing from my mind, I am married to an artist. So I do understand, uh, and, and I have the greatest respect for people who have that particular talent, because I'll tell you, I don't. Uh, I really have no talent for graphic design, and I know my limitations. So in the world of print, this language has built up, and it really probably goes back to Aldus Minucius in um, 16th century Italy and, and all of that, back when print was just getting started. And uh, so we've built up this language. And yet the World Wide Web Consortium, uh, and this is generally abbreviated W3C, says this visual language should not be used that way. Now, it seems to say that. And why is that? Well, the first instance is there is an accessibility issue. If you are using the visual appearance of text to communicate information, you are by definition leaving out anyone who cannot see that visual presentation. They're not going to get that. that that's information that they will not get. Okay, so that's the, and this is what first led me into it, was taking a look at this, but as I dug into it more and, and spent some time learning about how to put together websites appropriately, I discovered it's a much deeper issue than that. Um, web content needs to be interpreted and displayed in a variety of ways. And this is one of the things that differentiates web content from print. Right? If you're a graphic designer working on a magazine, you can lay out the page and you can know that every single person who looks at that magazine is going to see that page laid out exactly the way the graphic designer laid it out. Because you have control of that in print. You're creating this physical artifact and you control what it looks like. But in web content, you might be looking at a web page with a large monitor like my 25-inch desktop monitor. Or you might be looking at it on a 12-inch laptop screen. Or maybe a 7-inch tablet. Or a 4-inch telephone. This poses a problem now. You don't have that complete control. And that's inherent in the way the web works is that you don't. Now, you could try, theoretically, to design a different web page for every possible monitor, and, and you quickly realize that that's just impossible. You can't do that because you don't know how big the screen is, you don't know what resolution it's at, there are just so many variables. It really becomes impossible. And that's why web designers, the best ones, you know, people like Seven Apart, uh, started to say, hey, you know, we need to design differently. We need to develop a different approach to this. Right. Now, that's not all. There's another issue that I think is very important. People are not the only ones that need to access and understand the data. 
I'm going to bet that every single person listening to this podcast uses a search engine of some kind. I, I tend to use Google to find web pages. And how does Google find web pages? Well, they have software that goes out and reads the page and then abstract from that some ideas about what the page is about. All right. So this is an example of uh, what could be a more general case of machine reading. All right. You're using software to try and figure out what's the substance of this particular piece of text. And you have to do that in order to then be able to say to someone doing a web search, ah, this is the page that you're looking for, or this page has the information that you're looking for. Another example, software that turns text to speech. Now, that was originally developed to uh, assist people who are visually impaired, but it's now becoming even more broadly applicable. Um, we're starting to use software to take electronic texts and turn it into spoken word for people who have no visual uh, issues, but who maybe want to listen to a book that you that they have while you know driving, doing housework, what have you. Um, you you may know that uh, the Amazon Kindle has that capability built in. Um, Unfortunately, because the publishers um, have a uh, cranial rectal um, insertion problem, uh, the capability is frequently turned off. Um, so there's, there's a good article, and I, I've got a, a few uh, websites that I want to refer to uh, that I've put in the show notes. It's an article um, on a site called Universal Usability that gets into some of this stuff that I think is, is kind of interesting. Now, one of the great gurus of web usability is a fellow named Jacob Nielsen. And he wrote a classic text, Designing Web Usability, uh, from New Riders, published in 1999. Uh, and he talks about this in terms of semantic encoding. And by this, he means encoding the text in terms of what it means and how it functions within the document, not in terms of how it will look. So to Nielsen, it would be very wrong to take the title of your page and place tags that make the font bigger and bolder as a way of saying, hey, this is the title. Instead, we use a tag called H1. And H1 directly states, this is the title of the page. That's what an H1 tag is supposed to be used for. And that's an example of semantic encoding. We take a piece of text, and we put something on it that says, this is the title. Don't say anything about, at, at this point, we don't necessarily say anything about what it's supposed to look like. We've just declared that it is the title. And the benefit of doing it this way is that any person or device that accesses this page will unambiguously know what the title is because it's been properly tagged. Screen readers for the visually impaired, text-to-voice software, search engine spiders, it doesn't matter. All will know exactly what the page title is by the proper tag. 
Now, this becomes important when searching, for instance, because it helps to improve the quality of the search results. If a piece of software simply reads the page and records the appearance of a word, how significant is that word to the meaning of this page? If the word is in the title, probably means the whole page is about that topic. Whereas, if it appears somewhere in paragraph 5, it may well be less important. Semantic coding helps solve this problem. Have you ever had the experience of doing a web search and you start clicking on results and it's like, uh, why did they send me here? This page has nothing to do with what I'm looking for. Well, there's a good chance you are the victim of a page designer who never understood semantic coding. So, that's why semantic coding, and, and I think this is a concept that, that has broader applicability. Um, you know, one of the things that we are dealing with these days is making sense of um, a mountain of data. We're at the point now where the amount of information that is being generated in the space of a year or two is about equal to every bit of information compiled by the human race from antiquity up until a year or two back. I was just exponential growth all over the place. And one of the biggest problems is making sense of all of that information. So it, it, it really does help if we use semantic encoding to do this. Uh, it's going to make it a lot easier to find information. Now, if you're putting information up on a web page, presumably you're doing it because you want people to access that information. You want to make it visible. You want people to find it. And particularly, you want the people that really want that specific information to find it. Okay. So that's the semantic encoding. But at the same time, the web is, at least in part, a visual medium. That's how the vast majority of people interact with it. There still is that visual language. And uh, so you're thinking, but I want my titles to be in a bigger, bolder font. And I like using italics to emphasize words and phrases. After all, this is a visual language that almost all of us have grown up with. It's one we're fluent in, and it helps us to build more compelling pages. So we don't want to throw out visual presentation. We just want it to take its proper place. And that's why the W3C did not say to get rid of visual language only that we keep it separate. Do not use the visual language to short-circuit the semantic encoding, but use it alongside. And there is a way to do that, and that way is through something called style sheets. Now, on the web, it's called cascading, cascading style sheets, or CSS. You know, the cascading part is you can have a style sheet that calls another style sheet that calls another style sheet, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, you know, don't worry about that too much. But, you know, a style sheet per se is a concept that predates the web by many years. In print production, the style sheet is used to create a distinctive appearance. 
Now, sometime, if you want to have some fun seeing how people think about all this stuff, there's a movie called Helvetica. And if you're thinking, hey, isn't that the name of a font? Yeah, you're right. Someone with a passion made an entire movie devoted to a font. And the thing is, it's a great movie. You know, if you have any feeling for graphic design or, or just what it is to be a geek, because this is a type of geekery that we're talking about, it's a great movie. I recommend it highly. Get it from Netflix or, you know, where, wherever fine movies are obtained, wherever you are. Uh, so, anyway, back to the story, style sheets. Publishers of magazines and newspapers would select certain typefaces, a certain color palette, some, maybe some other elements of visual design and combine them in a style sheet that told the designers, this is how we want to appear. So, you may not have noticed it, you know, particularly if you're not trained as a graphic designer, but it's already all around you. I bet you can identify many different magazines at a glance just because you know how they look, even if you never consciously thought about it before. Now, in terms of web design, a style sheet is a way of saying, every time I put this kind of element on a page, here is how I want it to look. A style sheet lets you specify, for instance, that every H1 element on your site and remember, the semantic meaning of the H1 tag is that it's the title of a page. So you could say, well, all of those should appear in Arial font, bold, 16 points, in the color blue. And this is just an example. Uh, you could you do any way you want, but the point is you can make that specification on a style sheet and say this will apply to all my H1 elements. Then you can take your subheads, your H2s, and say, okay, I'm going to go through this, you know, every H2, make the font a little. Maybe instead of 16 points, it's 14 points. Um, you know, because that becomes then a visual cue. It's not, it's a subhead, not the, not the title of the whole page. Uh, you could then go into every sidebar link and say, I want all of those to appear in this font, um, in this color, and so on. So with style sheets, what you do is you have a control over appearance, but you do it through the proper semantic tagging of your content, I mean, if you're doing it properly. And because you can apply a single style sheet to the entire site, it is a big time saver. If I have a style sheet that says, I want all of my headings to appear this way, I, I don't then have to go clicking through all of the different settings every time I'm doing a heading. I simply say, yeah, this is an H2, this is an H1, and the style sheet immediately takes over and fills in all of the other stuff because I've told it to do that. Furthermore, suppose you decide to redesign your site. That could be a lot of work. Or, if it's just the visual appearance that you wish to change, it could be very little work. 
because all you have to do is change the style sheet. All your content stays the same, but the visual appearance can be radically different with a different style sheet. Now there's a uh, site called the CSS Zen Garden, again link is in the show notes, that uh, illustrates this wonderfully. Uh, it, let, it takes a single bit of content and if, if you look closely you'll see the content never changes but it gives you you know a dozen or more different style sheets and each one of them makes the site look radically different and yet you changed it with a click of the mouse well it's because someone already wrote the style sheet in practice having been there and done that uh, I can tell you that writing the style sheet can take a little bit of time uh, but for a large site, changing a style sheet is a whole lot simpler than redoing all of your HTML for the entire site. So it's a much more efficient way of doing things. So that is the idea of separating presentation from content in the context of the web. And it was an important concept, and I was really glad I was introduced to it. But what I'm going to do in my next program is I'm going to show how I took that insight and then used it to understand some things about office productivity software. Because it really is a much broader concept than just what happens on the web. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. And until I see you again, this is Ahuka. Uh, and I will... Once again, just say, Ohio Linux Fest is coming up. Mark your calendar September 28th through 30th. It's basically, it's the last weekend in September. Um, and we'd love to see you there. Uh, and please follow us on uh, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, Identica, LinkedIn. We're on all of the, so all of the major social networks. Um, and so you can get all of the latest news. And with that, I am signing off. See you later. Bye. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.